The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 165 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. The show is also available on all podcast platforms everywhere that you listen to podcasts, so make sure wherever it is you are listening, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on new episodes every week. And if you have a moment, go ahead and leave me a review of whatever you think the show is worth, and uh, make sure in your comments, uh, let us know what one of your favorite guest authors have been so far. And uh, don't forget, if you ever decide to share the episode, tag us in that so that I know you're sharing it, and uh, I'll be happy to comment and uh, help spread the word as well, because there's been some fantastic authors on here, and makes me just happy as can be whenever fans are sharing the episodes along with me. So yes, I am uh, uh, back in the studio doing what I can, uh, recovering still. Uh, I think this episode's going to end up being a a little bit late, but it'll still be Tuesday when I put it out. Uh, But uh, yeah, I'm not able to do, uh, to talk for a length of time, but uh, feeling a lot better. And and, I mean, what can I say? You know, as we've all learned, COVID really sucks. Um, (laughs) Yeah, because of... COVID, I have, uh, I've had to postpone a few interviews for the show, and then uh, likewise, I've also was invited on a couple of other shows that I've had to postpone as well, so that, that kind of stinks, but, you know, it's going to be good. Once we get to it and get back into it, it'll be, it'll be good. It'll be a good thing to do. Uh, those of you who have been sending me well wishes on social media, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I, I really I'm really touched by all of you out there uh, wishing me well as my family and I get over COVID. Um, That's really kind of you, and thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Uh, If you're not following the show on social media, you can find it as the Sample Chapter Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If social media is not your thing, you'd rather just reach out to me, you can do so via email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146. And we'll go from there. Again, I'm not going to talk too much. Still going to go ahead and save my voice uh, for now. But I do want to take a moment and uh, tell you about this week's guest, J.D. May. She's a debut author with a fast-paced thriller, Factor 7. And J.D. and I had a really great talk. She was a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, we, we discussed things like getting back to writing after a very long hiatus, uh, characters that speak to us, uh, traveling for our writing, and using Google research for, uh, for locations and, and learning things for us to write about. All that and so much more, plus a, a, a thrilling and actually very frightening chapter reading is what's in store for you coming up right after a word from our uh, sponsors. But first, uh, I want to say thank you to Pop Goes the Culture, our podcast network that we are a part of that helps share the word and uh, spread the word about our show. And they are home to about a dozen other shows, so click that link in the show notes so that you can uh, see everything they have to offer. It's a lot of fun over there. 
I also want to thank Project Entertainment Network, home to about 35 other shows, just like this one right here. Hello, is anybody out there? Anybody. This is Jim Cobb. If you're hearing this, the worst has happened. I've recorded a podcast at the end of the world that will broadcast it on channel PEN every Friday. It's all about the apocalypse, books, movies, TV, how much food and water will you need your bunker, all that kind of stuff. Excuse me, sir. You're going to have to keep the noise down. You're in a library and you're scaring the kids. The world hasn't ended yet. Sorry, ma'am. Shh, you're in the library at the end of the world with host Jim Cobb. Fridays exclusively on Project Entertainment Network. And finally, I want to thank our sponsors, uh, starting with Scrivener, my favorite writing software. Uh, check out this ad to find out how you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. And last but not least in our hearts, I want to thank Audible for uh, helping us with the show and creating a wonderful free 30-day trial by just uh, going audibletrial.com slash sample chapter. Hey, check out this advertisement for more information about that. Hello, friends. Jason here. And I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family. I'm a thriller author. And I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifle. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. Hey, full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com slash sample chapter, the show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? 
Head on over now to audibletrial.com slash sample chapter and start your free 30-day trial today. Okay, without further ado, let's get us on over to our interview with Texas native and first-time author, J.D. May. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Sample Chapter podcast. And this week, we are speaking to Texan native J.D. May. J.D. is a third-generation Texan and, true to her roots, her debut thriller, Factor 7, introduces readers to Texas traditions, colloquialisms, and locales through her fictional but prophetic writing. The gripping story of Factor 7 offers a terrifying but relatable look at our possible present and future and elicits in her readers the reaction of pleasure, excitement, and fear of the unknown or even the dreaded what if. J.D. May, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, how are things going in Texas? Things are going well. We've got cool weather. I'm in I'm, I'm not in my home little town right now, and uh, I'm enjoying the cooler weather and, and uh, a new granddaughter. So I, I, things are going marvelously well. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. That Thank is you. a wonderful time indeed. Thank you. Yeah, and the book's doing very well with uh, signings, and that's why I'm, I'm in San Antonio right now. And so uh, people are hearing about it and buying the book, and I'm thrilled to death and honored that they are enjoying the book. Oh, that's great, that's great. Such a good feeling too, to get to go and do a book signing in the midst. Of how, now, how are you doing that with the with COVID? Are you, do you have certain regulations or anything? Texas is pretty wide open now. Okay. Uh, we have to go into a restaurant. You do have to have a mask on to go through the door, but you take it off when you get to the table. And uh, we did wear masks. It was done outside uh, Saturday and um, everybody did have a mask on most of the time, mm -hmm. but um, Texas is really pretty wide open. Yeah. Businesses have opened their doors and, and we're back to probably 50, 60% capacity. Okay. Yeah. Missouri is very much like that as well. Uh, most of the restaurants are, are still open and uh, yeah, maybe 50, 60% capacity. Same right. thing. You need to have a mask when you go in and all right. that, but uh, yeah, but still like the, some of the bookstores and I know our local library still hasn't opened officially, but right. you can call ahead and get li uh, books uh, prepared and then they'll come and meet you at the door. And you can they were, they were taking, um, they were taking people in one door and uh, walking them out the other door. And I was outside and would give them a book to go in and pay for and come back out for me to sign it. And they were only taking maybe six, eight people into the store at one time, but it worked out well. Um, and, and we had a lot of people, of course it was in a venue that there's just thousands of people uh, with farmers markets and the, the Pearl Brewery is there with you know shops and, bars and restaurants and bakeries and so it was a, a perfect place to have had it that's fantastic yeah, it's, it's a nice place nice place <laughs> all right well uh so 
what is your history with writing? Have you always been a writer? I have not always been a writer. Um, however, I have always written something, if that makes sense. Um, I started Factor 7. I'd written, backing up a, a moment, I, I had written some magazine articles, sold a couple of them, and sat down and started writing Factor 7. And had it in a very, very rough draft, ready to start editing it. And um, I lost my husband. Two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. So the book went on a shelf and wasn't touched until she was in college. And so uh, when she was in college, which was several years ago, she found it when she came home, read it, called me from her dorm room, said, Mom, you're going to have to rewrite this. this it's got too much potential where you need to write it again. Well, I listened to her, but it took me a while. And a year and a half ago, I suppose I picked it back up. And the factor seven of today is a very slight resemblance of the one that was done in the 90s but it still has the same name and some of the same uh, subject matter, but it's quite different. And so I have all to, to thank her for insisting that I get back to my passion and um, I'm a writer every day now. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just become my life. I, I'm a painter and a writer. So I'm, I'm doing my two passions, which make me happy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like you are very creative. Well, I, you know, it's just, um, it's just, the, I think when you love something uh, and you put your heart into it, you can, you can make it work. So uh, it's just finding, finding out what you really want to do with your life sometimes takes longer than, than you would like it to. But uh, I'm, I'm at that point where I'm, I'm living my dream. That that's a good message though about the coming back to a book that you had worked on so long ago because uh, I know a lot of authors, myself included, have a drawer full of uh, you know notebooks that are maybe half full or three quarters right. full of right. a uh, <laughs> a first draft of something, and it's like oh, I don't know if I'll, that'll ever see the light of day. But right. every once in a while, something comes up. I'm like, oh, you know, that might be fun to get back to, and right. That's, a, well, that's the, a great story that you... The uh, first book was about um, a virus, a pandemic, which this one is also got that same uh, theme to it. And of course, it was very serendipitous because even when I started writing this Factor 7, we had not been hit with the coronavirus in the United States. Actually, I, I, we'd never heard of it when I st first picked it back up again. The finished copy has now got some references to it because uh, as I was finishing it and going through the final edits and things, I added that. Mm -hmm. But when it was first written, it was it was before anything that we're going through had happened. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> That's uh, certainly a, a timely that uh, it just happens to have come up that way. So I, I did an interview with an author two years ago who was writing about a pandemic that swept across the nation. And this was post, or well, in the midst of it and then post pandemic. And then uh, I talked to the author again later uh, after the pandemic kicked off. And she was like, yeah, it's kind of crazy that it's like, 
I'm happy to have book sales, but I did never intended no, to have right. something like this. Right. Well, mine's not really a pandemic in this story. It's about how viruses can be manufactured to become a weapon. Oh. And um, that was quite different from the first Factor 7. But I decided that, in my opinion, there's, you know, you've got what's coming up in the near future, in the future will be uh, manufactured bioweapons, cyber and DNA manipulation. And that's probably the way we're going for warfare. And that was what this book is about, um, about using and creating a virus for a weapon. This happens to be for a particular group of people uh, that a conspiracy theory secret society has uh, has has done. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to leave it kind of there, but that that's that's the premise of this particular point when you talk about viruses is a bioweapon. Okay. What was the uh, what was the impetus? Like what sparked this idea in your head when you first started writing it? You know, I really don't know that answer. Um, <laughs> I I joke. I, I mean, I knew what I was going to write about because. Uh, I knew I was going to write about a, a bioweapon, but I didn't know where it was going to take me, mm-hmm. honestly. And I don't write like like they teach you to write, and I don't write like a lot of people. I I don't do an outline. I just start writing and it and see where it takes me. And I joke and say that my characters talk to me, and they do. And I'm not crazy, but they really do take me where I want, where that where they want to go, which is my, you know, my mind and my imagination, of course. But my characters kind of took me step by step where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do with this. Um, and and the truth is, is that I didn't even know how I was going to finish the book. And I woke up in the middle of the night from a dream and got up and, and wrote the last chapter. Uh, I had actually, dre- I dreamt it. And um, that was how I finished the book. Oh, so to wow. tell you how it all started, I really can't tell you. It just evolved as I was writing. So that, I mean, you're in good company here. I, I also like to, I, I have a general idea of where my story's going, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't outline it very much because I found I used to outline a lot, but then I felt like I had already written. So there was no surprise left in what's going to happen. Right. I I think I knew where I was going to take it somewhat, Mm -hmm. but um, I did not know until I decided to pull in the Mexican cartel, which I do in the book. I had no idea I was going to pull that in and it worked in, in well with the story and, and it was needed. And my protagonist told me to do it. So <laughs> that's how that happened. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, well, call me up and tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally understand that. So I, and I've got some of the, my characters would talk to me and, and I would have characters that would pop up that weren't even a part of the original thing. It's like, wow, where'd this person come from? Right. Right. And pe- people that don't write don't understand that, Jason. But yeah. um, 
but but I'm glad you do because people kind of look at me out of the corner of their eye and say, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I had one character that tried taking over the book altogether and make it about her. And I finally, uh, I ran with it for a little while before realizing like, okay, no, you're going to have to come out and I'm going to have to find something else to do with this storyline because yeah, this isn't her book. This is a different story. But, but I saved that and printed it and set it aside in, a, in my files. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fun. And that's what makes writing fun is that, that uh, it's not a chore, like a, like a classroom uh, exercise. It's, it's fun. It's, it's creative. It's, it's day. Every day is a different day and every day is a different, different uh, way. I'm going to, what I'm going to put on the paper and, and it makes life exciting. I hope it makes the book exciting also. Well, it sounds like it does from the reviews I've seen online and, and such. And I understand that uh, you like to travel and, and some of that kind of informs the book as well. I do. Uh, of course, that's kind of been stifled recently. But yeah, I, I really like to travel. I've done, I had a, a dear friend that lived in Naples, Italy. And so that's why um, Ranieri Enzo in my book is Italian. And my friend's name, last name happened to have been Arienzo. She is now deceased. And the, the place that I have Rainey's apartment is in the castle that my friend lived in. And so I drew off a lot of the places and descriptions of places I had been. And I went to school and also spent summers with my daughter in San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato, Mexico. And, um, that's also plays a big part in my in the story in this book. Wow. Never been to Mali and and Mali is in the book, but I have never been to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what you can find out about it on the internet though. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. My my latest book, I had a couple of uh locations that I'd never been and I couldn't go to. So I was literally doing like the Google street view and looking up reviews and pictures online and just kind of like, okay, let me just do the, I just touch on the details, a couple of things that people would know uh -huh. without giving too much detail. So that would be like, oh yeah, that's that. That sounds just like it. Oh, well, that's, you know, the way you said that sounds like me and my research for this. People said, how much science do you have? And I said, high school. And I, I kind of laugh and they said, well, how did you do this? I said, a lot of research, a lot, a lot, a lot of research. And then a lot of um, literary privilege. It's fiction. And I, you know, you just, you take what you, what you know to be true, expand on it. And it doesn't all have to be a hundred percent fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that's the, that I get what you're saying. You, you take take a little bit and turn it into a lot right yeah yeah because at some point when you're writing fiction you got to go the okay but now that's this factual thing's going to become something else just because that's what i want that's what i, I want that's my story <laughs> that's right it's my story <laughs> right and that's the fun thing about it so that is, that's the fun thing about it oh my goodness so what's next for you what uh, what comes after factor seven well, I actually have the sequel started. Uh, it is uh, 
going to have some of the same characters. They wouldn't let me go. And, um, but it's not about a virus. It's going to be about uh, DNA manipulation. And uh, which is something that we're seeing happening in the world now. Um, it's it, making people stronger, uh, not so much artificial intelligence, but actually manipulating the DNA of human beings to change strengths and, and things that make them more beneficial for armies and war machines. Ooh. And that's where the sequel is going to go. Oh my goodness. That's in that direction. I hope so. It's a long way from being finished. I'm I'm hoping that I have it written and, and edited by fall. It would be nice to to set my my launch dates always on the 5th of January. Like I like this book, Factor Seven was was the 5th of January 21. I'd like to have the sequel you know, in 22 on the 5th, but we'll see if I can get it done that quickly. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. How, now, how did that work for you, uh, putting out a book so soon after New Year's? Did that work out pretty well for you? The publicist, uh, it was her idea, and I have no experience in any, you know, she just said it needed to be on a Tuesday and said that December was not, known to be a good month mm -hmm. and we needed the pre-sale time. So uh, she actually was the one who chose the date for the launch to give us the time for the publicity and the pre-sale uh, months ahead of, of the actual launch date. Okay. But I think it's worked so far so good. Yes. Um, yes. It, it's, you know, people are buying the book Um and and it's it's still being bought. It's not. It's certainly what I mean. Right after the launch and all the pre-sale went in, um, the rankings on Amazon were, of course, incredible. But they're still good, and and the, the book is still selling quite well. Yeah, yeah, you are right there in the the medical fiction and medical thrillers you're just over that thousand mark right now on both of those so that's that's a great the week that followed the launch i was 200 oh wow yeah and that just sent me over the top in happiness but that was the pre-sale right mm -hmm. there you go but that's still you know what and with the first book I, i'll take it i'll take it <laughs> i'll take the thousand <laughs> yeah <laughs> you betcha you betcha Oh, I will. Goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, where can people find and follow you? Uh, my social media. I have uh, a Twitter account at author JD May. The Instagram is at JD May Writes. Facebook is at author JD May. And then my website is www.authorjdmay.com. All right. And we'll make sure to have links for all that in the show notes. Uh, everybody who follows the show regularly, you know that they're there, but anybody who might be listening for the first time, when you're done, just look down below, click those links, and you can follow JD wherever on social media that you want to, or get on over to Amazon or uh, 
Oh, I saw the other. Barnes and Noble. Any place. Actually, Factor 7 is available anywhere books are sold. There you go. And we'll have the links for that in the show notes. So everybody can just click on there and uh, pick up a copy for yourself. JD, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I know you were, you had a lot going on. And uh, of course, the joys of being a new grandparent. Uh, wonderful. Um, <laughs> it is wonderful. Yes. And uh, she's beautiful, if I say so <laughs> myself. <laughs> what What is her name, by the way? Ella. Ella. Catherine. Oh, oh Ella that's Catherine. beautiful. We call her Ella. That's beautiful. She's named for my mother, for my daughter's grandmother. And uh, they're not going to probably be able to to meet her. They are my both of my parents. Her, my daughter's grandparents are in a nursing home with advanced Alzheimer's. So uh, I, we just hope that we can get Ella with for at least a picture with with her namesake, my mother, before uh, it's too late. Mm-hmm. But it's yes, it's wonderful. That's it's a family name. Oh, that's lovely. Well, all the best to you. And whenever the sequel comes out or is getting ready to come out, you've got to reach out to us and let us know that it's ready so that we can tell the listeners that uh, that the next one is ready. Well, I thank you for that opportunity. I do. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, time for me to step aside and hand the floor over to my guest, J.D. May, with her debut novel, the thriller book, Factor 7. Thank you. I'm going to read um, some main excerpts from the first chapter of Factor 7. Dr. Hawkins slid his fingers down the pale green panels of his office door. His break from the trauma unit had been only 15 minutes and was far too short. His nails made a scraping sound that matched his irritated mood. Not again, fuck this shit. Why can't some trauma resident handle the rest of the night? Anyone but me. Geez, enough already, he angrily mumbled. But he knew it was his job, and when all was said and done, he would rather handle the cases himself than pass them off to someone less qualified. It was because of Sam Hawkins that St. Peter's had such a high survival rate in the shock and trauma unit. The nurses and the exhausted residents who had shuffled through the corridors earlier in the night had been gone for hours. Sam should also be home in bed with his wife, Lauren, but that wouldn't be not that night and not that morning of July 5th. As head of the department, he was the first to arrive and the last to leave. So he answered his own question. Such it was that early morning. Sam bent over to tie his laces on his sketcher sneakers. He slipped covers over his shoes as he had done so many times. The speakers monotonously repeated the calls. His ears were tired of the sound, tired of the voice on the speakers. Nonetheless, he increased his speed as he turned the corner to the final steps toward the trauma emergency west wing. Sam punched in the code to enter the emergency department. The metal doors parted just as he felt a firm hand grip his right shoulder. Startled from his exhausted, induced trance, Sam turned to see Dr. John Albright. John was a good three inches taller than the almost six foot Sam Hawkins. His jet black hair glistened in the brightly lit corridor. His slender body matched the long, thin fingers that still held firmly to Sam's shoulder. 
It was no wonder that he could have had any woman he wanted when the two were back in medical school. Sam glided through the open doors, all bright in tow. Gathering himself, Sam jerked away from his would-be hindrance with one swift pull and half-body spin. What the fuck do you think you're doing, Albright? Let me go. Hey, man, sorry, didn't mean to startle you. Startle me? Fuck, you nearly gave me a coronary. I hate it when people sneak up on me. Couldn't be in a better place than that for a heart attack. I heard there was a great trauma surgeon who works here, Albright said. Sam frowned, yeah, whatever. What the fuck are you doing here anyway at 4 a.m.? Albright smiled and simply said, sitting with a sick friend, his perfectly aligned, too white to be real teeth, reminded Sam of some cartoon character, but he couldn't remember who. He had a smile that was something between sincere and menacing. Sam didn't want to chat, especially to him. He didn't care the least bit why John Albright was at the hospital. Can't talk, got a warm body in there, gotta go, gotta get to it. Sam held up his squawking cell phone. I have an emergency in there. He walked away, but glanced at Albright one last time. From the corner of Sam's eye, he saw that John Albright's smile had turned into an unsettling frown. His blue contact enhanced eyes narrowed a piercing last gaze at Sam. John Albright had an uncanny way of making Sam feel unusually uncomfortable. He grimaced at the thought of their past. It had been problematic to say the least. Sam had never thought of Albright as a friend and lately he hadn't thought about him at all. Sam had always considered him a fake and a user, out for himself at any cost. He had to admit that Albright had been a great student at the University of Texas Medical School and then a superior resident at St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston. He could have picked any hospital to make his career but had it not been for his incessant narcissism. He skipped around for a while, according to the proverbial hospital grapevine. John Albright was beyond the conventional term of handsome and was always the charming ladies' man. Sam's spare time was spent on the golf course, at a fishing spot, or on the back of a cutting horse. Albright's was on a tennis court, or a yacht, on the back of a polo pony, or on the top of the wife of one of his best friends. They were as different as night and day. Sam saw more nurses and technicians than the usual shock trauma response team. A man wearing a black yarmulke and a long black coat stood at the, at the side of the gurney. The EMS guys, who apparently had brought the patient to the hospital, were talking to Sandra, Sam's lead trauma nurse. Other from the team, were prepping the larger of the trauma rooms, which was usually reserved for the most critical of patients. A small framed woman leaned down and whispered into the patient's ear. Sam recognized her immediately. It was Anna Roberts, the wife of the hospital's chief of staff, Dr. William Roberts. He felt as though his heart had fallen into his gut. Bill was the patient. Oh, fuck. Sam mumbled under his breath. He didn't try to, to apologize. Everybody, please move. Let me in. Anna, what happened? Anna Roberts raised her head from her unconscious husband. Her voice was weak, but definite. He felt poorly at dinner and took a couple of aspirins and went to bed. I heard him a few hours later go into the bathroom. I didn't know. 
She paused as the tears filled her eyes and the fear tightened in her chest. He was on the floor. I found him on the floor. Maybe an hour, maybe more. She held her head in her hands and started sobbing. I didn't know he was sick. Oh, God, Sam, please help him. Sam raised his hand and showed it the familiar two-finger gesture. His nurses knew from experience to clear the room of all non-medical personnel. Seconds passed. He moved to the EMS team that was still standing near. Awe and fear were apparent on their faces. Why was Dr. Roberts brought here? Wasn't he at his house? It's closer at Methodist or the medical center. This is trauma, not. And he paused and he glanced at the unconscious friend. Whatever this is. The emergency team had seen the recent epidemics of influenza and novel viruses. And it had even been through the Ebola scare and the corona pandemic. But this seemed different. The drill was always the same in that department when someone presented with an unidentifiable symptoms. But Dr. Roberts was the exception. Everyone knew the, the renowned physician and everyone knew something horrible was happening. His appearance changed from moment to moment as the team struggled to stabilize him. That was Sam's job. He was supposed to stabilize the patient and then turn the ill patient over to another specialist. But what specialist would that be? He was lost, except to treat each individual symptom. Sam ordered everyone to get into full level A personal protective ensemble and equipment. Full face gear, folks, this, there might be particle contamination. He also slid into a bio four biohazard suit and bio boots. He threw the protective gloves to the side and slipped on a heavy pair of, of gloves. Heavier protective gloves and full face covers a protocol and should be worn, even by you, doctor, said the older surgical nurse. Sam ignored her. Anna said he had been apparently fine until early evening when he simply took aspirins. What do you think of this, Sandra? Sandra moved closer to Sam. Now, that's too strange to call. Whatever it was, Sam knew it was progressing far faster than he had answers. Suddenly, Dr. Roberts' eyes opened wide and rolled in their sockets. His body arched with the seizure. He convulsed violently and nearly fell from the bed. Sam pushed the side rails up and forced his full body weight onto his friend. Holding him down, Sam shouted, Constraints! Constraints! I need constraints! The IVs were running wide open with the largest gauge needle available for the fluids. He convulsed again violently, and this time the needles were ripped from his arms. Sam was thrown almost to the floor. The team had been splattered with both the medicine and the blood, but fortunately they were all in personal protective suits by then. Sam looked around to check his team. They seemed to be all fine. He glanced at his glove. His voice became a low-pitched whisper. Damn it, a hole. He pulled back from the patient. Draw some blood and send it to the lab for HIV and protocol tests. My glove was compromised. He stated calmly, it was not the first time Sam had been nicked while attending patients. Accidents like that came with, with the territory and happened all the time. But the combination of symptoms that Dr. Roberts was experiencing was completely foreign and Sam was aware of the danger. Sandra was already ahead of him. She tied a large rubber tourniquet around the upper part of Dr. Roberts' right arm and headed for a vein that was still intact. Got it, she said. She handed the vial of blood to one of the attending physicians, rushed this to the lab. 
Make sure this sample is separate from Dr. Roberts' other specimens. She paused. Dr. Hawkins, I can't stop the bleeding. It's still bleeding from the IV. It's bleeding profusely. Put more pressure and wrap it. Sam looked at the amount of blood of bleeding when Sandra removed the needle. It was the least of his concerns at that particular moment. Sam knew the drills when there had been a compromised glove and when the patient presented with unknown symptoms. And Dr. Roberts certainly had unknown symptoms. But Sam Hawkins had a reputation of being somewhat of a rebel in the ER. And Sandra knew from experience that he would do what he wanted. Coercing him into following rules to the finest degree was just a waste of her time. There were beeping monitors in every corner of the small room. From every angle, techs and nurses announced the patient's vitals. Sam separated and processed each voice and each word the way a hunting dog deciphers the scent of a raccoon from a squirrel. Pressure dropping, doctor, announced one of the male nurses. Sam kept his eyes on Dr. Roberts. Nothing he had done was helping the old man. Sam and Sandra had a special connection. Her angry eyes burned through Sam, but she would say nothing about his infraction and subsequent possible contamination. He glanced at her and bit his lip as a scolded child might do. She pulled the bioantiseptic from a cart and quickly began to swab Sam's hand and fingers. It doesn't appear to have broken the skin, doctor, Sandra whispered. You stupid ass. Only Sandra could get away with such insubordination. She was almost old enough to be his grandmother. When will you ever learn? Biohazard gear is for a reason, she frowned. Sam, he's not clotting at the injection site at all. Got it. I'll try to follow the rules. Sam forced a half smile and a wink. He knew she was the most competent trauma nurse in the hospital. She could probably do his job. He then glanced at Bill's arm. Try again to get that bleeding stop. Stay on it. The nurse looked over at Sandra and began to wrap gauze around Dr. Roberts' arms. Blood dripped to the floor. Sandra prepared to take a baseline blood sample from Sam. You're next, Sandra ordered. Sam held out his left arm while he, he listened to the older doctor's heart. One of the male nurses tied another rubber tube to Sam's extended arm, and he drew a vial of blood. Sandra wasted no time. She assisted Sam into a pair of another heavy gloves. She knew even then that he would not accept the bioprotective handguards. They were all too, always too cumbersome, and he had always refused to wear them. Today was certainly not going to be the exception. Despite the commotion, half the team had continued to replace the IVs. The others sterilized the immediate area, which had been splattered with potentially highly biohazardous substances. The team worked together like a well-rehearsed ballet. Something was terribly wrong, and Sam knew that none of their efforts were changing any of Dr. Robert's vitals and chances of his recovery. The electrocardiogram is looking worse, doctor. Sandra paused for a moment. Uh, doctor, he's going into ventricular fibrillation. Sandra, okay. Give him 100 milligrams of lidocaine and have the defibrillator set at 300 joules. Sam grasped Dr. Robert's hand. Hold on, Bill. Stay with me now. Sam studied the peculiar rash and extensive bruising. Blood pooled in the tissues. Large, volcanic-looking sores were popping up all over his frail body. Dr. Roberts 
was hemorrhaging inside and out. Anxiety was evident on all the faces of Sam and the team. Most of the ED team had seen terrible, horrific things. Trauma centers saw that regularly, but Sam sensed a special trepidation. This was perhaps a disease they knew nothing about or how to treat. In addition to all the obvious, each person of the team had potentially been exposed. Sam shook his head in confusion. He needed something that looked remotely familiar, anything that would give him a clue how to control this thing, perhaps an unknown pathogen that was killing his friend. A voice came from behind the head of the bed. Dr. Hawkins, his heart has stopped. He has no pressure here. Another nurse chimed in, and we still have, have not stopped the bleeding. He simply would not clot. He glanced at the multitude of monitors. Then Sam jabbed a long needle into Dr. Robert's chest and it exhaled sharply through his clenched teeth. Epinephrine first, then we'll try CPR. He's so frail. Hold off. Sam held his head and tightly and sighed tight loudly. Do you have a pulse with the adrenaline? Nothing, doctor. Does he have a DNR or is he full code, whispered Sandra. I don't know and I don't care. Sam stared at Sandra's eyes. I've got to try everything. For God's sake, it's Bill. He took a very deep breath. All right, let's prepare for full CPR and be ready to intubate the patient. Get the respiratory therapist here, stat. Paddles, 300 joules. Clear, Sam shouted. Dr. Roberts convulsed and his body arched from the electrical shock. Doctor, we have a pulse at 35. We have a rhythm back. It's weak, but we do have a rhythm and a blood pressure of 60 over 40 again. Sandra's gaze sympathetic into Sam's eyes. She knew the slight improvement was only temporary. Sam was a trained surgeon and his main discipline had been trauma care for the last 20 years. He had a good knowledge of transmittable diseases, but he was not an infectious disease specialist. He had seen one case of hemorrhagic fever while in Africa and cases of Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome while he was in the Philippines and South Korea during his stint on a Navy medical ship. He had studied strange diseases such as Morgellons and Ebola. But although Dr. Roberts had all of the indications of those deadly diseases, there were so many other symptoms that just didn't fit any single illness. He seemed to be riddled with infections and his entire body was hemorrhaging. Sam knew that his friend and the patient had something that was much different and deadlier than anything he'd ever seen or even read about. It was hideous. As skilled a physician as was Dr. Sam Hawkins, he could only stand by and watch his friend morph into some repulsive creature. Dr. Robert's disease was progressing too rapidly. There was no time to call in a consult or a specialist. And anyway, who would he call? He was on his own, and he was scrambling for answers. Blood results are in. Sandra read the computer screen aloud. Shows a viral infection unidentified, but says a massive bacterial infection unidentified, too. Liver enzymes, blood proteins, all, they're really way off the charts. And the kidneys are going fast, Sam. Sam held up his hand, indicating that she should wait for further instructions. He shook his head. No, damn it. That answer's a little for me. Unidentified. Damn, how do you treat unidentified? Suddenly, the elderly Dr. Roberts gasped. He reached out his swollen, disfigured 
hand. Two fingers grab the neck of Sam's protective gear. The adrenaline straight into the heart, or perhaps the CPR had worked its magic. His heart was beating and he had regained consciousness. He forcefully pulled Sam down to his face. His strength was anything but that of a dying man. His dark copper colored eyes could barely open and were cloaked in blood. He stared hard into Sam's eyes. His breath gurgled in his throat as he opened his mouth in an attempt to speak. Sam took Dr. Robert's hand firmly from his collar and gently laid it in his own hand. The older doctor began to shake his head as if saying no. Bill, Sam's words were staccato. You're a wonderful scientist and my friend. Your research has saved many lives. You're a good husband, he paused. His breath was just as disjointed and quick as his speech. Hey, buddy, I'm, I'm not done with you yet. We're, we, got, we got plenty of holes still to play and some fish to catch. Dr. Robert shook his head. Closer, he mumbled in desperation. Brother, seven, he strained out the garbled words. Sam bit down and put his ear almost on the elderly doctor's mouth. I don't understand. Do you want your brother, Stephen? Sam moved from his patient and whispered to Sandra, rambling. His brother died years ago. Keep him out of pain. Sam frowned and looked away momentarily, seeing his friend in such distress hurt Sam to his core. Dr. Roberts groaned. He shook his head again, indicating another negative response. Safe, safe, seven. He took a shallow, belabored breath. His chest rose only slightly with the effort. He tried to take another breath. His chest heaved. Muffled, gurgle sounds emanated from his mouth when he whispered what sounded like cucos colligrum. Sam recalled from his limited non-medical Latin classes that the first meant something like to keep or keeper. The second was vaguely familiar, but he couldn't recall precisely its meaning. But then again, had he even heard it correctly? If he had heard what Dr. Roberts said, he thought maybe perhaps it was something that meant club or society, but he wasn't sure. He was just guessing. None of it mattered anyway. It made no sense. He quickly dismissed it. Dr. Roberts was too ill to think lucidly, much less speak anything clearly. The older doctor had simply demonstrated a dying man's ramblings. Sam had witnessed the terminally ill attempt to say things that no one could understand. The lack of oxygen to the brain and the imminence of death often made for horrific exhibitions, and Sam was confident that was the case with Bill Roberts. Dr. Roberts tried to enunciate more words again, but he didn't have adequate breath to expel the sound. Sam surveyed the monitors. He looked at Sandra. She frowned and turned away. The respiratory therapist had arrived. The shock of seeing Dr. Roberts' condition caused the young woman to physically shake. No intubation, Sam whispered as he leaned again toward his friend. The therapist quietly gasped in horror while she moved closer and obtained a clear view of the patient. Clearly rattled, she tried to regain her professional composure. But Dr. Hawkins argued the therapist. He's having difficulty even breathing. Are you sure of this? Yes, he wants to talk. 
Sam shook his head resolutely. We're certainly not going to injure him now with tubes down his throat. Not at this point. Sam glanced at the floor. A puddle of opaque pink liquid was dripping from the side of the bed and puddling at his feet. He paused and whispered, it won't do any good now anyway. Blood and fluids flowed from every orifice. Dr. William Roberts was on the brink of death. Safe, the older doctor barely pronounced, produced breath to form the word, and red bubbles of blood drooled from the corners of his mouth. Sam was not sure what he had heard, but he repeated it back. You are safe, Bill. Dr. Roberts moved his head in opposition again, outwardly angered. The older doctor attempted to speak one more time. As the word seven left the older doctor's lips, he again wheezed out, this seven. Sam was confused and moved closer to the older doctor as he struggled to tell Sam something. Dr. Roberts coughed. Thick red clots and black mucus hurled from his mouth. Red blood flowed from his nose. He gasped for oxygen. Then he mumbled a last indistinguishable word. It sounded as if he said, all right, but Sam couldn't be sure. He could not be sure of anything at that point. Dr. Robert's body jerked and trembled, then fell still. His dark eyes were ominously fixed and gazed in a death stare directly at Sam. Sam tried to shake it off. Death was a normal occurrence in that part of the hospital, and Sam saw it almost daily. But there was something almost paranormal in Dr. Robert's gaze. It beckoned Sam, even in death. Okay, let's get him back. Shock him. 300 jewels. Clear. Clear. Sam shouted. Clear. Do we have a pulse? No, doctor. Nothing. Again, clear. Sam paused. Dr. Hawkins, he's gone, whispered Sandra. Please, Sam, let him go. Sam shouted again. Give me 300 jewels. Clear. Sam, Dr. Hawkins. Sandra didn't need to say any more. Sam lifted his head from his patient and looked resolutely into Sandra's eyes. He knew she was right. He stood back from the bed, and the monitors beeped a sorrowful, flatline monotony. The team waited quietly. A familiar death stench filled the room. The body was wrapped tightly in blood-saturated sheets and cooling blankets. Sandra touched Sam's arm. Call it, Sam. You have to call it. Sam bowed his head and gently pounded his fist against his own forehead. He was outwardly shaken and deeply saddened. Then he seemed to gather his emotions and recover some strength. He stood erect and took such a deep breath that his shoulders rose in the effort. He ran his hands softly over Dr. Robert's eyes and closed the swollen eyelids. Sam stared at his friend's hideously ravaged and lifeless body as if he were trying to speak to him without words. He pulled a sheet from under the bed and gently laid it over the dead man's body and face. Then Sam took a step back. The team had never seen their boss do anything like that. His voice was soft yet resigned. Time of death, 6.07 a.m. Yeah, thank you so much. That was J.D. May, uh, like I said, reading a thrilling and pretty frightening sample chapter from her debut novel factor seven the book is available right now and it's doing really well um, 
Make sure you click that link in the show notes for more about JD and her upcoming books uh, that she is currently working on. Also in the show notes, you find the links for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when I'm back with an all new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you again next week. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.